Thomas Manton said the following, division in the church breeds atheism in the world. True or false? Well, it doesn't take too much work to prove the first half of the statement, does it? Division in the church. And we might not expect like denominations to get along. Like, would we expect Pentecostals and Baptists to hold a joint church service only if you believe in miracles? That was a church joke. But don't you think we could expect, like, uh, inside the denomination or even more specific, don't you think we could expect uh, a, a local church, a local body of believers to have unity, to, to get along? Well, if we've been following the news at all over the last number of years, that might even seem like too high of a bar. I mean, let me provide just a couple of examples. Maybe you've been listening to Christianity Today's like, world-famous podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It chronicles uh, a huge church in Seattle that started off as a house Bible study and transformed into a church of 15,000 people across 14 states with a $25 million annual budget led by one of the most famous celebrity pastors in our whole country. And the church evaporated almost overnight in 2014. Former attenders and staff cite a, a very toxic leadership culture and domineering and slander and this, this elevation of brand over character. Or maybe you heard about a kind of a famous megachurch in Minneapolis, conservative church over the summer where three pastors, including the senior pastor, resigned, quoting Here's what they, they said, uh, a spiritual abuse and a toxic culture. It was a church that had a pretty good reputation in the community, wasn't so unscathed after that. Or one more example, maybe a church in North Carolina, maybe you heard about this, a famous pastor, the author of Radical, where uh, there were elders who were up for re-election and some people inside the church and some others outside the church started spreading rumors about three of the elders who were up for election on the elder board saying that they wanted to sell the church to a group of Muslims so that they could turn the church into a mosque. Well, their plan worked, and these three elders were not elected to renew their terms on the board, and it threw the whole church into mayhem. Now, if you've been around the church for any length of time, there's a chance that you've experienced this division firsthand. When I was 22, my first job out of college, I was kind of a naive 22-year-old, and I thought that the conflict in a church, the battles would come by fighting the enemy, by fighting people, uh, fighting the enemy who's outside the trenches. But I learned that sometimes the strongest opposition can come, can come from down the hall, not just outside the church. But should we settle for disunity? Is that what Jesus wants for the church? No. He desires unity. He desires togetherness. That's what he wants. That's what he prayed for, for us. But sometimes we fail to walk in togetherness. Sometimes we fail to walk in unity. And as Mahatma Gandhi famously and sadly said, quote, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Sometimes it's easy for us to blame the rest of Christian America for being angry and divisive, and, and it would maybe be easy for us to spend the night just talking about them and all of their problems, whoever they are. But that's not what we're going to do tonight. Tonight, we're going to look inside. We're going to look at us. We're going to look at our young adult family 
and see what Jesus has to say about unity. And we see that crystal clear in John 17. So I'm going to read uh, the rest of Jesus' prayer, starting in verse 20, John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we're one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. Last week, Fritz called this passage the real Lord's Prayer. And I agree. In the New Testament, this is the best example that we have of what Jesus prayed, how he prayed. But did you see how he started in verse 20? He says, I don't ask for these only, but for all who believe in me through their word. He's talking about the disciples, everyone who's going to believe in Jesus as a result of the disciples' testimony. If we think about it, each one of us, if we have a relationship with Jesus, can trace our spiritual heritage all the way back to the disciples. So you see that Jesus prays for everyone who's going to believe. That means here in this text that Jesus prays for you. He prays for me, who believed that same testimony about Christ. But if we had to pick a one-word summary for this text, what might it be? Well, it's the word that's repeated four times in the first four verses, the word one. Jesus prays, he desires that his church that believers will walk in oneness, will walk in unity. And thankfully, he gives us a little bit of a picture, an idea of what that unity, that oneness should look like. Looking at verse 21, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, that the world may believe that you've sent me. (laughs) Did you just catch what Jesus said? It should blow our mind. Jesus prays that we will be one, resembling the oneness between the Father and the Son. Friends, theology matters. And to understand the oneness between the Father and the Son, we have to understand the relationship between each member of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the unity and the diversity within the Godhead. Now, as evangelicals, we would say, yes, I believe in the Trinity. But did you know that the word Trinity never appears in Scripture? Go to BibleGateway.com, type in Trinity, search go, you'll find nothing. So then why would we hold the Trinity as like a top, top, top tier doctrine of our faith if it never appears in Scripture? Wow, I'm really glad that you asked. Because the Trinity is not simply the best way of explaining the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that we see in Scripture. It is the only orthodox way to explain the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that we see in Scripture. The great historical theologian Augustine said the following, quote, In no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable in talking about the Trinity. So when we talk about the Trinity, there are seven statements that must be true. I think you can catch all seven. There's only one God. The Father is God. 
the Son is God, the Spirit is God, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. When we think and try to wrap our mind around the Trinity, we have to understand all seven of those statements. And the first is pretty easy to prove, isn't it? There's only one God. Think of the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God in three persons, the Trinity. Now, it's also not a challenge for us to demonstrate the deity of each member of the Trinity. As we look at Scripture, proving that the Father's God the Son is God and the Spirit is God. And if you want to research this a little further, write down these four texts. Just give you an idea of the deity of each member of the Trinity. Acts 5, 3 and 4, Hebrews 9, 14, Colossians 2, 9, and Titus 2, 13. Those would be some great passages to look up if you want to dig into this a little more. But God is one in essence, one in godness, three persons, the Trinity. But think of the implications Each member of the Trinity has existed eternally and will exist eternally, living in perfect fellowship with one another eternally before the creation of the world. And throughout the book of John in particular, Jesus is very clear about how his relationship, how close he is with the Father. In John 10 verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus The Father, they've dwelled together eternally. They created the world together. There's no sin. There's no conflict. There's no competition. There's no ill will between the Father and the Son. Jesus willingly came to earth, temporarily veiling access to his divine attributes while he walked on earth. No wonder he spent so much much time in prayer with the Heavenly Father. But when you and I think about oneness, unity within the Trinity, namely between the Father and the Son, it does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean sameness. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each unique persons with distinct roles, yet are equally God in perfect unity because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one God in three persons. Now think of some of the adjectives or some of the ways that we would describe the relationship between each member of the Trinity, namely the relationship between the Father and the Son because that's what Jesus is talking about in our text today. Eternal, sinless, clearly defined roles, submission and exaltation, humility, glory, perfect camaraderie, no competition, perfect love, and perfect harmony. Now, if Jesus desires that the church walks in the same oneness demonstrated between the Father and the Son, it doesn't take a PhD in sociology to see that's not how the church is living and acting today. The church in America doesn't demonstrate that type of unity, that type of oneness. Christianity in our country is as broken and angry and polarized as ever. The church in America does not have the greatest reputation. And the pandemic really didn't help. What could have been the church's finest hour, instead we often got caught up in arguing about masks and vaccines and distancing and politics and liberty, and we are not going to go down that bunny trail tonight. Because tonight, we're not going to talk about the church in America and talk about all of those Christians who are angry and divisive and causing problems. No, we're going to talk about us. Because finding unity with a million other Christians might be impossible. But finding unity with our young adult family, that's what we've got to talk about tonight. We have the opportunity to be part of Jesus' answer to prayer in this text. 
So three ways we want to think about unity tonight. And here's our first. Unity is manifest in our message. Unity is manifest in our message. Now, if we don't start here, we will never find unity. Because unity requires a common foundation. Unity requires the same beliefs, the the same belief structure and worldview structure. If we just fight for unity without fighting for the same foundation, the right foundation, then Christians will look like a a group of people uh, standing in a circle singing Kumbaya who have no idea what they stand for. Many in our world today believe that unity just means we've got to find the lowest common denominator. So whatever we don't agree on, then we've just got to throw out the window And then we'll just agree on what we can agree. But finding the lowest common denominator is not (laughs) the solution. Maybe I can explain it this way. When I was in college, my family took a a ski trip over the Easter holiday. And it was was Easter Sunday, and, and we wanted to go to church. And the resort, as a way to cater to their guests, decided to have an interdenominational ecumenical church service at sunrise, which for us was a win because we could go to church at sunrise and then ski the rest of the day. Maybe not the best priorities, but we won't get into that. So we rode the chairlift at like 6 a.m., got to the uh, part of the mountain and, and piled into this lodge with a couple hundred people ready for this sunrise service. And, and after a couple songs, uh, the pastor got up and began to share a message. I was in college. I was n- far from being a pastor. But all I wanted to do for the next 20 minutes was go and take the microphone and start to preach because the sermon was horrible. It was horrible. I mean, Resurrection Sunday is like the best opportunity to preach the gospel, but that's not what this pastor did. Got up there and, and talked about love and Jesus and resurrection power, never once talking about why Jesus had to come to die, never once talking about why we need the resurrection, never once giving people the opportunity to respond to Jesus with repentance and faith. It was just a message about, yeah, Jesus loves you and you've got resurrection power. It was horrible. I'm still mad about it. <laughs> but what happened was they designed the service around the lowest common denominator and they preached a false gospel. Finding the lowest common denominator is not the solution. We need to be united on the same message, which is kind of cool in our text that Jesus prays that for those who will believe in him through the disciples' word. Anybody know the Greek word for word in this text? Lagos, John 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. If it wasn't intentional, it's at least a pretty ironic correlation between chapter 1 and 17. Jesus is the word. He's the message. He's the testimony, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to be united on the gospel. Our unity is manifest through the same message, the message of Jesus. Frankly, if somebody preaches a different gospel than what we find in scripture, there can never be unity because it's a completely different foundation. I will never fight for unity with someone who preaches a different gospel. I'll love them. I will value them. I'll care for them. I will tell them about Jesus. I will pray for them, but we're not on the same foundation. And if you think I'm being aggressive, then listen to what the apostle Paul says. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. You can just listen to this if you'd like. Galatians 1, 6. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. 
as we've said before. And now say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You know what was happening in the church of Galatia as these false teachers came in and they preached a different gospel. They told the church that, well, yeah, in order to be a Christian, you've got to believe in Jesus and you've got to follow the Old Testament law. And Paul, I mean, he was pretty ticked. And what our English translations do all the time, and it's kind of frustrating, is they soften Paul. They try to make Paul look PG. And that's what the ESV did here. I love the NET in this passage because it translates the Greek word anathema correctly. Let them be condemned to hell. That's what the Greek word anathema means. And if you don't believe Paul, he uses the same word anathema twice in the same passage. That's how passionate he is about people preaching the right message of the gospel. So what is the gospel? What's the good news of Jesus? What starts with bad news? That we're sinful and separated from God. That we could never earn a right relationship with God by our own behavior because we're born sinners and God's standard is perfection. And we've earned by our own sin eternity separated from God in a literal lake of fire. But Jesus came, took on our form and our flesh, living a perfect life, fulfilling every aspect of the law and thought and attitude and action and never sinning once. And he went to the cross because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. Taking on himself the full sin of humanity in the great exchange. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all. And we have to respond to the gospel with faith and with repentance, faith, believing that when Jesus died, he paid the price for our sin. And repentance, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, turning away from an old way of life, asking for forgiveness and following Jesus. The good news of the gospel, responding to the gospel with faith and repentance. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you turned to him as your savior? It is the most important decision that we can make. And as Christ followers, we have to stand united on the same message of the gospel. If we don't, we'll never find unity. And additionally, there's probably some other theological majors that we need to agree on. The authority and the inerrancy of God's word, the second coming of Jesus, the Trinity, God is our creator, Jesus, fully God and fully man. And I'm sure we can add some more on to the list. But there are some things for us to find unity as a young adult family that we frankly just need to put on the back burner. We don't need to uh, agree on them, but we also shouldn't make them a big deal. And today, I don't think it's theological issues that are driving a wedge in our young adult family. It's social issues that are threatening our unity that might be causing a divide within our young adult family. Vaccines, Omicron, masks, politics, Trump, Biden, elections, Rittenhouse, Arbery, the school board recall. You probably have an opinion on almost all of those. And they're probably not identical to mine, though I'm certainly correct. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But why don't we lean into this for just a moment? Because I know these discussions are happening in our small groups. Maybe there's somebody in your small group that just shared last week or the week before that they lost their job or could lose their job if they don't get vaccinated. And you're sitting there thinking, why is this even a question? Just get vaccinated. Or maybe you're sitting in your small group and there's somebody who shared a prayer request as they're considering getting the booster, a, a third shot. And you're sitting there thinking, why did you get the shot in the first place? 
and both of you are equally convinced that you're correct. That's going to be one of the things that we're going to have to agree to disagree on. That we just can't make that big of a deal in our young adult family. It's not worth dividing over. So that if somebody says, you know, I, I'm asking for prayer as I think about getting another shot, and you don't agree, pray for them and pray that God will give them wisdom. Or flip it around, and if somebody is concerned about their job and not, maybe not comfortable to get the vaccine, pray for them and pray that God will give them wisdom. It's not worth dividing over. Or maybe some of you loved President Trump. Others of you tolerated him. Others of you despised him. Or maybe you're an advocate for big government. Maybe you're an advocate for small government. Maybe some of you exercise your Christian liberty and responsibly enjoy alcohol, or others of you have decided to abstain. Unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean that we find agreement in everything. Sometimes we have to agree to disagree, not on the essentials, but on the non-essentials and the preferences. Our unity grows and develops as we build upon our foundation. And Jesus provides a picture using essentially the same phrase twice. Look again at verse 21 and verse 23 in our text. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Look at verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. I hope you caught what Jesus said. He prays that we may be one so that the world may know that he's the son of God, that the world may believe that he's the son of God. One of our best apologetics is our unity, but it's more than that. We find unity in our message, but our unity grows exponentially through our mission. One of the greatest ways for us to grow in unity is through a common goal. Not seeking to advance the kingdom of Sam, but seeking to advance the kingdom of Christ. And that's our second principle tonight. Our unity is magnified through our mission. Our unity is magnified through our mission. Unity comes when we think outside of ourselves, when we work together to accomplish the purpose that Jesus has set for us. It's our goal in young adults. It's our vision. Our young adult vision is this, empowering young adults to be who God's created us to be, not a fair-weather fan, but a faithful follower of Christ. Fair-weather fans don't fight for unity because they're selfish. They just follow when it's convenient and comfortable. But faithful followers of Christ have a purpose that far exceeds and transcends their circumstances, a goal that's bigger than themselves. I have a dream for young adults in 2022 that will grow exponentially in our unity through a common message and our common mission. Now, if we think about it, there are so many ways that we could potentially find unity. Maybe it's through a shared experience, like growing up in Wisconsin or having a similar hobby or going on uh, the young adult mission trip or going to the camp out, experiencing the same small group. We could find unity through common interests. But I'm convinced the greatest way for us to find unity is through a common purpose, through a common goal, by working together to advance the kingdom of Christ. Because if we believe the message of the gospel is true, then we hold the greatest, the key to the greatest treasure box in the whole world. 
We have the greatest imaginable news. The only way to be forgiven, the only way to be saved from our sin, the only way to find eternal hope, the only way to, to attain forgiveness that surpasses our own guilt and shame. And Jesus is crystal clear in our text tonight on our mission that the world may believe and know Jesus as the Savior of the world. That's our mission as our young adult family, to bring the good news of the gospel to a world that needs it now more than ever. So we have a really practical, a really memorable, a pithy way for us uh, to remember this vision and uh, practice and implement this vision in 2022. Think of that theme word from our passage is the word one. Jesus desires that we're one, that we grow in our unity through a common message and mission. So here's our vision for 2022. It's called the power of one. You can write this down as we go. Number one, pray for one person a day. Number two, engage one person a week. And number three, invite one person a month. So pray for one person a day, engage one person a week, and invite one person a month. Jesus prays that we'll be one, and we're going to grow in our oneness through the power of one by praying and engaging and inviting people who don't know Jesus, who are far from God. I think if each one of us can think of somebody in our life that doesn't know Jesus, that does not have a relationship with him. And God's given us the opportunity to bring the good news of the gospel to that friend, that family member, that coworker. But before we ever open our mouth, we've got to pray. So starting in the new year, starting in January, we're going to do our best to pray for one person a day, somebody that doesn't know Jesus. It could be the same person, or we could rotate through a couple of, of different people. And maybe praying once a day sounds daunting, or maybe you don't quite know what to ask or what to pray for. So we're going to kick off 2022 with two special messages. The first is going to be on January 3rd, and it's going to be all about prayer, how we can pray for people who are far from God. It starts with prayer. Because when we pray, we slow down. When we pray, we look for opportunities. We open our eyes. We start to put our phone down and pay attention to those who are around us, and we look for ways to engage. We're going to engage with one person a week. Here's what we mean by engage. A conversation or, or even an action that communicates love, that communicates that we care. Not just in a, a casual way, but in a deeper way. Letting, these, letting somebody know by our words, by our actions, that we love them. Maybe it looks like this. I'm pausing at the, the checkout line and pick and save. As long as there's not four or five people behind you and asking the person working behind the counter, how can I pray for you as I go through my week? Or, or maybe it means talking to the waiter or the waitress at lunch after church and asking the same question. After being polite through the whole meal, just ask them before you leave, I'd love to pray for you this week. What's one thing I can be praying for? That's a way to engage, communicating with someone that we care. Or maybe it just means pausing in the neighborhood while you're walking the dog and having a conversation with the neighbor that you see once or twice a year and just checking in to see how they're doing. We've got to engage with someone, letting them know we love them before we invite them to encounter Jesus. And that's our third, invite one person a month. What do we mean by invite? Well, it could mean inviting somebody to young adults or to church on Sunday morning, but the power of one is so much bigger than a marketing campaign or a growth campaign. This is not just a way to get people in the door on Monday night. We're inviting people to encounter Jesus. Now, if I'm being honest, inviting somebody to come to young adults on a Monday night is, you know, that's maybe the, the lower bar. I mean, imagine inviting someone to encounter Jesus could look like inviting that coworker out to coffee and 
and hearing their spiritual story or, or calling up that relative that you've been talking to and doing your best to share the gospel with them inviting people to encounter Jesus. It could mean starting a neighborhood Bible study with some people that are on your street that don't yet know Christ. So maybe engaging and inviting also sounds a little bit daunting. Well, on January 10th, I'm going to be joined uh, on stage by two individuals that have a gift of sharing their faith, a gift of conversationally engaging people about Jesus. And we're just going to have a practical night of learning how we can engage and invite people uh, to encounter Jesus who might not know him yet. So we're going to have a chance tonight in our groups to unpack the power of one, to share some thoughts, to share, share some reactions, uh, to share some dreams on how God might use us as a catalyst in our lives, to be unified to accomplish his purpose. I think this is cool because a lot of you are already doing this. In conversations I'm hearing in my office or in small groups or conversations I'm hearing from our small group leaders, these are already happening. Questions you're asking like, how do I share the gospel? Or how do, I, how do I talk to this person about Jesus? The power of one is going to give us the framework to take the next step by helping people know and believe in Jesus. The power of one, it's not just a task. It's not just a goal. This is a way that God desires us to live, continually thinking about our message and our mission. You know, I'd be amiss if I didn't pick out the... The final piece of unity that comes from our text tonight. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Spoiler alert. We're not going to be able to find perfect unity until eternity. We aren't. We're not perfect people. We all still struggle to flesh with the flesh. We all still struggle with sin. And that's going to make unity a challenge. Even perfect unity, our relationship with Jesus, it's going to be a reality in eternity. It's going to be a reality when we get to heaven. But Jesus prays that we might be with him where he is to see his glory. And we can look forward to that day when our unity is perfected in glory. And that's our third principle tonight, our unity is perfected in glory. So if we're going to have perfect unity with one another, if we're going to have perfect unity with Jesus in eternity, then what's the point? Oh, why fight for unity today? Well, it's not just what Jesus wants from us. It's not just what he desires from us. It's what he prayed for us. And it's one of the best ways that we can share our faith to be a young adult family that's united around a common message and a common mission. I'm convinced that God's up to something in young adults. And I don't just say that. Conversation after conversation, report after small group, report after report from our small group leaders, there are so many things that I'm hearing that bring so much encouragement to me about a young adult who's just called Jesus boy at work because he's talking about his faith. Or somebody who's grown up in the church and is finally getting serious about their faith. Or somebody else I had coffee with that just became a Christian is on fire and wants to share their faith on social media. I mean, what? That is so cool. Story after story of what God's doing in our hearts of, of people saying, yeah, I'm ready to start serving. Yeah, I'm ready to, to start reading the Bible every day. Yeah, I want to join a finally free small group and have some in, increased accountability in my life. I can see what God's doing in this room. 
And that, that's nothing that we can take credit for. That's God working in us. And I'm humbled that I get to see just a little glimpse of what God's up to. And I think that 2022 could be our best year yet. That if we go all in on our vision, I think the sky's the limit for what God could do through our young adult family. I'm looking forward to what's coming next. Let's pray. Father, it's humbling that Jesus would pray for us, that we might find unity and togetherness, that we might build upon the foundation of the gospel, and that we might grow in our unity through a common mission of telling others about Jesus. Father, we're humbled that you've you've given us the opportunity to know you, to have a relationship with you, and that you've allowed us to be partners together with you in your ministry, that you don't need us, but you've chosen to use us. And may we be humbled. May we take our responsibility seriously to be men and women who are excited to bring the good news of the gospel to the world. So as we look ahead to 2022, as we look ahead to the power of one and and how you might use this as, as a catalyst for us to take the next step in engaging in our mission, Father, use this in ways beyond we could even ask or imagine, not to grow the kingdom of Sam, not to grow the kingdom of young adults, but to grow the kingdom of Christ. So as we take some time to unpack these things in our small groups tonight, may you work in and through our discussion. In Jesus' name, amen.